Hi there, everybody. My name is Michelle Ann Olson, and you are listening to Are You Afraid of the Bark? The podcast that goes bark in the night. I'm back. Welcome to season two of Are You Afraid of the Bark? It's been just under a year since I last recorded an episode, since I wrapped up season one and had to take a little bit of a hiatus, but I am back. The podcast is back and I am really excited to be here. So if you are a new listener, welcome. Welcome to this podcast that explores the strange, the paranormal, the haunted in the animal world. And if you are a returning listener, then let me just say that I am so, so pleased to have you back with me. Thanks for sticking with me in the year that I've been away. But I'm really excited to be back with season two. And on that note, I'm going to jump right into things. Without further ado, let's dive into this topic, the topic of haunted farm animals. Yes, that's right. I thought it was kind of a silly topic when I started researching it. I mean, how scary are ghost chickens and geese and pigs? But the more I researched, the more I came across these genuinely bone-chilling stories. So I hope that you enjoy these stories and that I can maybe even give you a whole new category of animal spirits to be frightened of, the ghosts of farm animals. Starting things off, I'd like to talk to you about the ghostly chicken of Pond Square. Pond Square is found in London, and its name was derived from a body of water that was filled in in 1864. And yet this park, this part of London, maintains its name Pond Square. Massive trees cast long shadows across the asphalt. And it's in this park where you can chance an encounter with one of London's most unusual specters. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about Sir Francis Bacon. For the record, really upset that this story isn't about a ghost pig, but I digress. Sir Francis Bacon lived from 1561 to 1626, and he was a politician, a writer, a philosopher, and also a would-be scientist. He occasionally dabbled in scientific experiments. So he was one of the first people to come up with the idea that refrigeration, the act of cooling meats, could in fact preserve them. And that was a theory that he developed or that he started to explore after seeing that fresh grass had been preserved under a blanket of snow. So our story begins with Sir Francis Bacon on a bitterly cold morning in January 1626. He's hanging out with his friend, Dr. Winterbourne, and they're talking about this theory of refrigeration. And Bacon decided to put his theory to the test. He purchased a chicken, a live chicken, from an old woman on Highgate Hill. He then slaughtered and plucked the chicken and stuffed its carcass with snow. 
the idea being that he wanted to prove that this would preserve the quality of the meat. But in a deliciously ironic turn of fate, Sir Francis Bacon caught a severe chill as a result of his experiment. He was taken to a nearby home to convalesce and placed in a damp bed, and he died shortly after. So, that's great. That's great. Great, ironic, horrible way to go. Ever since his passing, there have been reports in the area of a phantom white bird, rather resembling a plucked chicken. It appears out of nowhere, races around the square in frenzied circles, flapping its wings all the while. In 1943, one Terence Long was crossing Pond Square late at night when he heard the sound of a horse's hooves accompanied by the low rumble of carriage wheels. Suddenly a loud, raucous shriek split the silence, and the ghost chicken appeared before him and proceeded to race frantically around before vanishing into thin air. Further sightings of the ghostly chicken were recorded during the Second World War, when air raid wardens saw the chicken and fancied themselves a nice dinner. But dinner was never caught. As they took up pursuit, the chicken merely disappeared into a nearby wall. In the 1960s, a motorist whose car had broken down encountered the same apparition, as did a couple in the throes of a romantic embrace in the 1970s. It interrupted their passion by dropping suddenly from above and landing next to them. In more recent years, sightings of the ghost chicken have been few and far between. Could be that its restless spirit has finally accepted the indecency of its demise and has come around to the importance of the scientific principle for which it gave its life. That, or I'm thinking, the chicken is content with the revenge of inadvertently having killed Sir Francis Bacon. And that is the story of the ghostly chicken of Pond Square. I feel that I have to mention, um, so I read these stories from notes that I research and write in advance of recording, and sometimes it's a little while between writing them and reading them out to you. And um, I seem to have written a note at the end of this story. It just says poultrygeist. So I think that I thought that that was really funny, probably in the middle of the night when I wrote these notes. So I'll just I'll just leave you with that poultrygeist. That's some top grade humor. Moving on to our next haunted farm animal. We're going to keep things in the avian family by talking quickly about the ghost goose of Melsonby in Yorkshire. The ghost hunter Elliot O'Donnell tells a story of a farmer who was driving a horse and buggy along the road in Melsonby when his horse suddenly shied and bolted the farmer wrestled with the reins and finally got the horse under control, although the horse was still running very quickly. He was at a loss to the reason for the horse's sudden fear when he saw beside the carriage what appeared to be a large white goose waddling along the road, the way that geese do, yet traveling over the ground as fast as his horse was. 
When they reached the churchyard, to the farmer's immense relief, though I can't quite imagine why, the goose turned in through the closed and locked gates and passed straight through them. This same spectral goose has been seen by several people and does seem to have a propensity for spooking horses in the area. Up next is the story of the Merivale pigs. And I found several versions of this story on various um, tourism websites, historical websites, paranormal websites, even in the book that I consult from time to time called Haunted Pet Stories by Mary Beth Crane. I found a few versions of this tale, and I'm going to relay to you, I'm going to read to you what I think is the best and most comprehensive version of this story. And I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm reading from the website Legendary Dartmoor. It was a dark, foggy night, and the moor was as still as the grave. Not a fox barked or an owl hooted. Times such as these, everybody should be firmly shuttered up in front of a warm peat fire, and if they weren't, they wished they were. One poor soul found himself traveling across the moor from Morton Hampstead to Princetown. The cold, damp mist swirled across the moor in waves. One moment it would be just about possible to make out the road, and then, in an instant, it was engulfed in a dense cloud. In such conditions, any sound will travel for miles and so the traveler's footsteps seemed to echo all around him. The man knew the road fairly well, only too sure of the fact that on each side were the derelict stone huts of the ancient moorfolk. Occasionally, he could make out the silhouette of a low, circular wall, and at times it seemed as if figures were stood in the granite doorways. The traveler pulled his coat collar up as far as it would go, in an effort to hide from the horrors of the night. By his reckoning, it must have been getting on midnight, which meant there would be little chance of a warming drink at the new inn. Besides, from the stories he had heard about that particular inn, it was preferable to simply carry on with his journey. After climbing the short, steep road that winds up from where the Curlycomb Brook bubbles under the track, the route became flat. From here the man could see that his supposition about the new inn was correct. Not a light could be seen. Ahead, he could see a huge, dark figure stood in the road. It appeared to be staring intently in his direction. The man faltered, stood, and listened. Not a sound apart from the gurgling of the Walla Brook down in the valley. Still, the figure stood defiantly, as if daring anybody to pass. With a sigh, the man bravely strode forward to meet whatever creature of the night was waiting for him. A slight breeze wafted across the ridgetop and momentarily cleared the mist, allowing the man to get a good look at the big, black, sinister figure of a pony nonchalantly stood in the road. The traveler smiled to himself. He had been out in the mist enough to know that everything seems about five times larger than it actually is. The closer he got to the pony, the more it gradually shrunk until it returned to its normal size. The man double-clicked his tongue, and the animal slowly sauntered to the roadside. Suddenly, to his left, the figure of a large, thin man loomed out of the murky night, his shoulders hunched down and his arms by his side. Again the traveler smiled. Ah, 
I've reached Bennett's cross, then, he whispered to himself. I'll soon be at Postbridge. He saluted to the old, silent granite cross as he passed. Wow, this story has a lot of fake-outs. Onwards he trudged, past the shuttered inn, all sign of life extinguished like a candle. By now he was starting to get tired. His knees ached and his feet throbbed, the only comfort being the journey down Maripit Hill. All of a sudden he heard a loud shuffling coming urgently across the moor and toward the road. The traveler stopped. This was no normal nighttime sound. He cocked his head and strained his ears. Whatever it may be was getting closer, heading straight in his direction. The sound of grunts now accompanied the scuffling. As they grew louder, the grunts turned into high, squeaky voices. Starving! Starving! They cried. A deeper voice then replied, Catergate! Catergate! Dead horse! Dead horse! Dead horse! With that, a sudden chill came across the moor, and the smell of must wafted on the wind. Then the ghostly figure of an old sow and her litter of piglets appeared from nowhere. They appeared to be bathed in a dim green light and were almost transparent. The pigs seemed to be oblivious of the traveler's presence. They shuffled across the road, headed off in the direction of Cater. A couple of days later, the traveler was recounting his story of the ghost pigs to an old Mormon. Ah, he said, the ghost pigs of Maripit Hill. They've been haunting that moor for two hundred years. The old boy took a deep swig of his cider, wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, and slowly nodded. Tell you something else. If you had followed him to Cater Gate, you would have heard the rest of the tale. The Mormon leaned back, and with an authoritative wag of his finger, he added, The reason they were going to Cater Gate is that there's a dead horse on the roadside, and those little pigs are starving. But when they get to Cater Gate, those pigs find that the crows have picked the horse clean. All that's left is a pile of bones. Those who have witnessed the ghost pigs at Cater Gate swear blind that the little pigs then squeal out, Skin and bones! Skin and bones! To which their mother sow answers, Let them lie. Let them lie. Then the pigs go a-traipsing back off across the moor. And that is God's honest truth. I don't like that. I don't know. Something about that really creeps me out. And it's pretty sad, I guess. As always, I'm recording this in the middle of the day because I'm an absolute coward. But that one, I don't know. It's given me the shivers. I don't like it. I'm going to conclude this episode with the tale of the Phantom Rabbit of Thetford Warren Lodge. It's curious that most of these stories are coming to us out of Great Britain. Um, yeah, now that I think of it, I wasn't really able to find any stories of haunted farms or haunted farm animals stateside. It's just curious. I'm always looking for Canadian content, so if anybody out there has stories of Canadian uh, ghost animals. I would love to hear them. Um, if the stories are set in the Toronto area, I would love to even maybe go out and do some reconnaissance. 
Um, I know that a story next week will take place in and around the Great Lakes. So that's sort of local, I guess. But yeah, as sort of an aside, if you have any stories of uh, Canadian animal ghosts, please let me know. I'd love to make things a little bit more local, but I have had some more trouble finding those stories. All right, the Phantom Rabbit of Thetford Warren Lodge. Thetford Warren Lodge was built around the 1400s, a few miles west of Thetford, at the bequest of the Prior of Our Lady's Priory, and the Prior had royal approval to hunt small game, and he was keen to protect his livelihood by constructing this defensive lodge that could repel poachers. In 15th century England, rabbits were a luxury item. They were prized for their meat and fur. Landowners feared... (laughs) This is a hilarious sentence that I've written. Armed bands of violent bunny poachers. I don't think that that has ever been uttered in the history of the English language. Armed bands of violent bunny poachers. So they constructed these lodges. Um... They were sort of uh, defensive in nature, impenetrable, and they would employ a resident warner to tend to and defend their precious fluffy-tailed resources. Okay. I, I don't know if I've taken this directly from my source or if I was just feeling extra superlative when I was <laughs> writing these notes. Precious fluffy-tailed resources. So Thetford Warren Lodge was large enough to accommodate hunting parties and the warrener. He protected, farmed, and sold the rabbits. And then it was also strong enough to defend against poachers. So the warreners who lived in this kind of fortament, they would live in the highest part of the warren. They would bore holes to make burrows. And they would provide food uh, to the rabbits, groundsel, dandelions, thistles, and on the ground floor of the building would be the storeroom for the traps, nets, and racks to dry skins and hang salted meats of hunted rabbits. So believe it or not, there are to this day still a few warreners working in the area, trapping rabbits and moving them to other warrens in a bid to control population. As with many medieval buildings, this lodge, which is now maintained by an English uh, heritage association, has its fair share of spooky stories attached to it. One ominous tale harks back to the building's warning history. It is said that a large, even huge, ghostly white rabbit with flaming red eyes guards the doorway to the lodge and is an omen of death to anyone who lays eyes on it. So consider the following story, which comes from the website Weird Norfolk. Tommy ran through the wood. How could he have been so stupid? As soon as the words spilled out of his mouth, he had realized his mistake. He still believes in the Easter Bunny, the leader of the pack had sneered. What a big baby. The second mistake had been punching the selfsame lad on the nose. Now he was being chased through Thetford Woods by three considerably bigger boys, one sporting a bloody nose. He crashed into the clearing to find a thimble-down ruin, a strange block of crumbling flint. Without thinking, he darted inside. Third mistake. Now he was trapped. 
You in there, Tommy Andrews, the lads called as they swaggered into the gloomy interior, the Easter Bunny keeping you company. In the half-light, Tommy saw their jeering faces and prepared himself for the beating that never came. Because suddenly, something large, white, and furry lolloped into the center of the room. It was the size of a small dog, and through its matted, transparent pelt, the boys could make out its glowing skeleton. Oh my god, this is metal. As they froze in fear, the ghastly rabbit sniffed the air and then turned to fix them with blazing red eyes. Tommy joined the boys as they ran screaming all the way home. Perhaps the Easter Bunny was real, after all. To wrap up, there are a few other strange stories rooted in this area. There was a nearby leper hospital called St. Margaret, where people suffering from leprosy were kept away from the rest of society on the edge of town. The building was ransacked in 1304 by a group of thieves who stole silver, linen, and cloth and then set fire to the building. So it is said that in that building, near to the Warren, a figure with a strange two-dimensional face can be seen gibbering horribly and terrifying witnesses as it wanders the area close to the lodge. An eerie face has also been reported looking out from the first floor window of the building, even though it no longer has any floors. In 2011, a man was seen peering from a second floor window, wearing blue and white clothing and boasting gaping black holes where his eyes and mouth should have been. Yuck. That has nothing to do with either rabbits or farm animals, but it was too spooky not to share, so you're welcome. And that's it. Those are my tales of ghostly farm animals. I really enjoyed researching this episode. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I hope that those stories gave you a little chill as well. I'm really glad to be back. I'm glad that you're either joining me for the first time or back with me after all this time. This brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to remind you that you can reach out to me in a number of ways. If you have any uh, comments, suggestions, if you'd like to share your own paranormal animal experience, or if you'd like to bring my attention to a story that you'd like to see covered, you can reach out to me in a number of ways. I can be reached by email at afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at afraidofthebarkpodcast, on Instagram at afraidofthebark, and on Facebook. The Facebook page is under Are You Afraid of the Bark? So please do feel free to reach out to me in any of those ways. Give the podcast a like or follow. Let me know if there's a story that you'd like me to research and tell. I'm always really, really happy to hear from any uh, listeners with any feedback or suggestions. Um, this season, I'm also hoping to feature down the road a few guests on the podcast. So if you have a story that you'd like to share in your own words, or if you can think of anybody who might uh, be a chilling resource for me in that capacity, again, just reach out. Let me know. 
I'd love to hear from you. So this is it. (laughs) Welcome to season two. Uh, I'll see you again next week. Thank you very much for joining me. And as always, I wish you sweet dreams tonight. Ha ha ha!